Amen. Uh, Merry Christmas, church. Happy New Year. Hope you're all doing well. Hope you all had a good time these past couple weeks celebrating uh, the holidays with family. And would you please open up your Bibles to our text this evening? Uh, we're going to continue going on through Luke. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. Luke chapter 2, 39 through 52. We read the following. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began searching for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And when he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this evening that we get to gather singing songs of praise. We thank you for just Luke as we've been working through it, Lord. And I just pray for us tonight. Be with us. Be with me. Help me to emphasize the things that you want emphasized. Help me to to go through this narrative and, and bring out the things that you want your people to hear and that you want me to hear, Lord. Your spirit be with us and working in each and every one of us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, as I'm sure you've, you can tell, we've been making a pretty slow trek through Luke, um, and there's a reason for that. Luke spends probably the most amount of time presenting the details of the birth of Jesus in these early days. Mark uh, starts off immediately with a bang. He goes right into the ministry of John the Baptist and into Jesus' adulthood. John does one chapter on the incarnation, but he does it with this theological and doctrinal point of view. Um, and not about just the regular birth. Meanwhile, Matthew and Luke are the ones that we tend to reference and go to for the Christmas story, and that's the one that we were going through recently. And so far, we've been digging through Luke at this slow pace, and we've been kind of hearing the incredible story. God, after hundreds of years of silence, reaching out to his people and doing something. First, we heard of Zechariah in the temple and the angel coming to him and promising his son, John the Baptist. Incredible situation regarding that and the future ministry of John. Then we saw the story of Mary and the angel coming to her and announcing the miraculous virgin pregnancy, announcing the coming of the Savior of the world and Mary's humble submission to the will of God. Shortly after that, Luke tells us about Mary going to visit Elizabeth and then receiving the affirmation there regarding her child 
And as a result, we see Mary crying out in song and worship to God, praising him. We followed that with, with the sermon on Zechariah's prophecy about the birth of his son and the future Savior that was to come shortly. And that prophecy gave us some insight into the situation, what was going on in Israel and the world at that time, and why Jesus was coming. And all of that was just the first chapter. In chapter 2, we get the Christmas story, the humble and, so, and not so glorious birth of God incarnate in a manger. We saw God then proclaim this good news to the most unlikely and significant people, some of, the, some of the shepherds who were out in the night keeping watch over their flock. And then last week, Raymond continued on with this story, and we see, we see how God continued to reveal the good news to unlikely, insignificant people in, in Simeon and Anna. And we see yeah, that God has been doing this time and time again throughout Luke whether it's revealing to people like Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, and Joseph, the shepherds, Simeon, and Anna, the response has been worship and proclamation of the goodness of God. And finally, that brings us to our text this evening. One final simple story in this passage about the early days of Jesus before Luke skips ahead about 17 years or so to adulthood. One thing to note, one of the interesting things that so far in this chapter that Luke has been intent on letting the readers know throughout this chapter, is that Joseph and Mary were pious and practicing Jews. After the birth, in verse 21, he comments on Jesus being circumcised and named at eight, at eight days old, as it was according to custom. And then in last week's passage, verses 22 through 28, Luke comments on them going to Jerusalem for their purification according to the law of Moses, as well as presenting to the, uh, Jesus to the Lord because he was their firstborn. And Luke reminds us that it was written in the law of God that the firstborn is holy to the Lord. There they offer sacrifice according to the law of the Lord again. And when Luke introduces Simeon to us, he again reminds us why they're there and that they're there to perform all the customs of the law. And again, our text tonight begins with these exact same things. Oh, and we read, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So including last week's verses and the ones today, we see that over the, pan of, the span of 20 verses, Luke highlights that Joseph and Mary were doing things according to custom or according to the law of the Lord seven times. Why is that? Why such a focus and emphasis on this? I think in one simple sense, Luke wants us to know, and he wants to remind us, that Jesus and his family were Jews. They were faithful, practicing Jews that God saw and honored. Jesus was a Jew, and the promised Messiah was to be a Jew. Jesus was perfect, and that meant fulfilling the law of God. And Luke shows us that even at an early age, Jesus had parents who were good examples of this. This was reinforced in the home. Secondly, I think Luke is highlighting their piety and actions because it's an honorable thing. I think in recent times, there's been such a strong per, uh, push in just American evangelicalism in our churches across the board, where we hear language like this of piety, of people serving, of people doing things, and it makes us uncomfortable. This idea that, well, Christianity isn't about works. It's not about doing a bunch of things to find favor before God. No punch list that we need to accomplish to be saved. We are saved by grace and not by works. And that's true. 
but we're also called to serve, to be doers of the word and not just hearers, just like Joseph and Mary were, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth were, um, Simeon and Anna. Paul writes in Ephesians, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, he, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our works do not save us, but when they are done in humility and service to God the way Joseph and Mary were doing it, it's an honorable thing and God delights in it. So back to our story, we read the following. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. One thing to note as we dig into the, the meat of our text this evening is that Jesus here is 12 years old. In the passage that Raymond addressed last week, uh, according to the purification rules and whatnot, Jesus probably would have been about 40 days old. And then we skip ahead 12 years to the events here, and then all we have is these 11 verses, and then Luke skips ahead to adulthood for Jesus. These 11 verses here in chapter 2 are the only words we have about Jesus as a youngster in all the Bible. It's a short, simple story, but God want, wanted it here. God inspired Luke to include it for a reason. And if I'm honest, I'm sure, like all of us, we'd probably love to know what teenage Jesus was like. That squeaky, crackly voice. Did he have, you know, some peach fuzz on top of his lip that he should have shaved, you know, at an earlier age than he did? Who knows, right? Um, did he perform miracles? Was there profound things he was doing in the neighborhood, wowing everybody? What kind of conversations was he having? Did the neighbor kids hate him? You know, parents, and they're nudging their kid, like, why can't you be more like Mary and Joseph's kid? Um, who knows, right? And it might be fun to think about these things, to contemplate them, but in reality, God didn't find it necessary for us to know. He did not include it in the canon and scripture for us. All we have is this one simple story. And at the end of the story, Luke tells us that Mary saw the events that play out here, and she treasured them up in her heart. Now, this may mean that she was one of the eyewitnesses that Luke was getting this story from. Right? Luke is writing these things for our certainty. He wants us to be certain about the things that we've heard. And so he used a lot of sources and eyewitnesses. Potentially, Mary was one of them, maybe someone a few uh, places removed from her. But we know that Luke used eyewitnesses. In reality, there are stories of Jesus as a child, but they're not in the Bible. Um, has anybody here read the Infancy Gospel of Thomas? Anyone? No. Okay. All right. Good. Probably for your benefit, but um, it's part of the New Testament Apocrypha. And there's a lot of these books, a lot of gospels, a lot of stories, and ultimately they were not considered part of canon. They were not considered part of the Bible. Uh, there's many reasons for that. Some argue that these texts should have been, that there's profound insight for us, there's things that we can learn and take from them, that there's hidden knowledge there for us to know more about Jesus in the early church. Uh, but in reality, many of them have questionable origins and even more questionable content. 
It's believed many of these were written much later and that the authors would just use uh, names of the disciples to gain credibility for their works. But when you start to read them, dig into them, you kind of, it becomes fairly obvious why they're not included in Scripture. Um, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas was most definitely not written by Thomas the Disciple, uh, and it reads like fan fiction, like something you'd find on Reddit or somewhere on the Internet. Uh, it reads nothing like the New Testament and displays for us a Jesus who uses and abuses his powers. He's arrogant, proud, boastful, demeans others, what we would describe as a little brat. Um, and some of the stories, he has these teachers in his education and has these like silly pseudo-intellectual conversations about the power of letters and how powerful the letter A is versus B and just these like goofy conversations that mean nothing. Um, and he demeans them, mocks them, puts them down. In other stories, there's one that actually made it into uh, the Quran where Jesus makes clay pigeons on a Sabbath and then breathes life into them and they become real birds. Um, another one, there is, it's, depending on translation, it's a little bit different, but either a kid is running by and bumps into Jesus or comes and intentionally hits him, but Jesus strikes him dead. He curses him, the kid dies. The parents come and complain to Mary and Joseph. Jesus makes them blind. Eventually, he reverses everything, heals them, resurrects the kid, but we see Jesus in these stories is not the perfect, spotless lamb of God, not a sinless human, but just a little tyrant. And ultimately, the Jesus depicted in those is not sinless, right? And thus, the Jesus in those stories is not the one who takes away the sins of the world. Ultimately, Jesus of those stories does not and cannot save. And there's a huge contrast in the way that author speaks of Jesus as a child and the way Luke speaks of Jesus here. The author of the Infancy Gospel of Thomas is more concerned with the spiritual, supernatural powers of Jesus. He's more concerned with his intellect, his deity, his powers. He doesn't seem to care about the character and identity of Jesus. Luke tells a simple story here, and while he acknowledges Jesus' profound understanding, we'll get into that. Luke is more concerned with the character and identity of Jesus, who he is and why he is here. And so in this story, we see that Jesus is 12. And that every year, Mary and Joseph would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. This is something expected of every Jew. And again, Luke is showing us their piety and their commitment to fulfilling the law of God. And this would be a long journey. Um, four or five days out from, from where they lived, it would often be done in large groups. Large portions of the village would get together and make the journey to and from Jerusalem. And so in a large group, there's no surprise that they didn't notice Jesus gone right away. Figured he was somewhere around. Historically, these caravans often traveled with women and children up front and young children up front. And then the fathers with the older boys at the rear. And Jesus being 12 was right at that middle age where it could have been that Joseph thought he was with Mary, Mary thought he was with Joseph. And whether that's the case or whether they just assumed he was with, with friends, cousins, aunts and uncles, all we know is that they weren't worried that first day. It wasn't until the end of the day. And because of the nature of the Bible, our distance from it in history and the fact that we often read it just for information and the fact that in reality these narratives don't often write, or aren't written with this dramatic element the way Steinbeck or, or Dickens would write. 
We kind of read these just for informative persons and, or reasons, and I do this too. It may have been as, as the day was coming to a close, they realized he wasn't with the other parent, and then that he's not with his cousins or aunts and uncles, and then he's not with their friends. And I'm sure with each and every layer, every minute going by, their stomachs begin to turn and panic begin to set in. Picture yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes. I can't imagine what this felt like. This is every parent's worst nightmare. The awful feeling that's just probably chewing at them, gnawing at their hearts as they search and search and can't find. As those minutes became hours and the hours became days. For three days they searched, and I'm sure that every moment was agony. I can't imagine. My daughter just turned one a few weeks ago. And one of the things I wasn't prepared for when she was born was that there seemed to be this secret compartment of just emotions in my brain, just a whole spectrum of them that got unlocked. I didn't know they were there. Um, suddenly I cared for this tiny little human in ways that I didn't know was possible. And it breaks my heart to see her sick, uncomfortable, just the slightest little thing, and you're just like hurting over her. I'm sure all you parents know the feeling. And I'm sure what Mary and Joseph were going through is that times a thousand. I don't know how somebody deals with this emotionally. Like, how? But they search and search. They can't find them. And after three days of searching, they finally do. We read that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. They find him in the temple, sitting among teachers, listening, asking them questions, engaging in discussion. One of the commentaries I was reading was saying that this was a very popular form of education at the time. Jesus probably wasn't getting a lot of this back in Nazareth. But a group discussion would, would take place with teachers, people there, a given question would be brought up, a problem, and then there'd be a back and forth through the group in terms of an answer. My dad loves doing this. Um, usually it's because he wants to convince us of something, but he'll drop just a bombshell of a Bible question at the most inconvenient time. Dinner's done, tea's done, Time for people to go home and be like, hey, what do you guys think about this? And then, boom, two hours later, we're still chatting about it. Um, I doubt our conversations were as profitable as the ones Jesus was having here, but nonetheless, they happen all the time. In fact, I don't know if it's just the thing in our Russian-Ukrainian community that, that we were raised in, but I don't think I've ever been to Leo's house where his dad or uncle aren't there, and this ha doesn't happen. It's without fail. But we see Jesus is sitting in on one of these discussions. Luke says that Jesus was listening, asking questions. He was involved in dialogue. And it's interesting to note here that this is the only time in Luke where Jesus is not the one doing the teaching. Here we see him as a listener, as the one learning. Often in the Gospels, we see Jesus instructing. He's often teaching and standing in opposition to religious leaders, to the scribes and Pharisees. Even in the infancy gospel of Thomas, the author tells this story very differently. He demeans the teachers. Jesus has this authority speaking over them, and in some sense, they almost even worship him because of it. But here, Luke is very neutral. He doesn't expound on the discussion. He doesn't give us more details about it. 
He doesn't tell us why, they, why Jesus impressed them so much. Luke simply says that Jesus was there. He was listening. He was asking questions. He was engaging in discussion. And as a result, we see that all who were there were amazed at, at his understanding and answer. There's this concept in biblical theology that states that when mankind fell in the garden, we lost more than a beautiful garden to call home. When sin entered in and mankind spiritually died, not only did we lose communion with God, but we also lost the ability to comprehend the things of God, to understand the things the way that God intended them to be understood and the way God created them to be understood. Right? This states that sin not only affected our, our souls, but it also affected our minds. And Jesus, the Son of God, he was sinless. Being fully God, fully man, Jesus had wisdom and understanding that was not clouded by sin the way we do. He understood the law of God better than these teachers. He understood the meaning of life and questions of ethics and morality far better than any of them. It's no surprise that Jesus, at age 12, could amaze them with his questions, with his wisdom, the things that he was talking about. Again, though, the interesting here is that Luke is not that concerned with telling us what these discussions were about. He doesn't focus on the things Jesus said, the profound insights. No extravagant story is told where Jesus drops the mic, some bombshell on these leaders, and they're all blown away. Luke keeps it simple. In fact, Luke reserves the first words of Jesus for the next part of the story when he's talking to his mother. We read the following. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? After three days, we finally find him in the, or they finally find him in the temple, sitting among these teachers in conversation. And Luke says they are astonished. Undoubtedly, Joseph and Mary's reaction here is a mixture of amazement and relief. Relief to have found their missing child safe, alive, and well. Imagine that weight that they've been carrying, the thing that they've been struggling with. Where is he? How is he? Just lift it off their shoulders and their hearts. But also amazement to find him where he is. He's not out playing with kids his age. He's not out in the city exploring, chasing animals, finding bugs. But he's in the temple with teachers, engaging them in dialogue, and it's said that the wisdom there is far greater than anyone would have expected from a 12-year-old boy. And there's transparency here. Again, we see the human side of Mary and Joseph. They don't find him in the temple and have this supernatural epiphany. They're just blown away. Yes, you're the son of God, and they, they worship. That's not how it plays out. It's not that dramatic. Instead, we have a picture of parents who have been frantically searching for their son, full of fear and anxiety, full of distress, as Mary says. Right? She says, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Mary here busts out the classic mom move. Soft and caring, right? She shows her tender love, but she's stern and reproachful. What were you doing? She wants Jesus to know that he's wronged them. The, the, the agony that they've been dealing with for these past three days. And justifiably so. 
I'm sure for anyone in this room, if a similar situation came about, no matter where we found our kid, no matter how good the situation, whatever they were doing, we'd still be stern. Why would you do this to me? Why would you make me search? And here we finally get to hear Jesus speak. Not at any other point in his childhood, not during his amazing discussions with these temple teachers, but here with his mother. A very intimate scene. And Jesus responds to Mary's complaint with these words. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus responds with two questions. And at first, it might seem a little sassy. Why were you looking for me? You know, it's kind of like, duh, where else would I be? Come on, lady. Um, you should have really known better, right? But considering how Luke describes Jesus here, the way he tells this story, it seems that there's a much more humble and honest answer to Mary's concern. The question of why were you looking for me is not a sassy response to her question. But by asking this, Jesus is saying that they shouldn't have needed to search. It should have been obvious to them that he wasn't missing, but in fact, that he was exactly where he needed to be, where he was supposed to be. And the second question here is more of a statement than an actual question. He says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Here, Jesus begins to hint at his identity and his purpose. And this is the first time, again, that we hear Jesus speak. He's 12. And Luke shares these words with us because he wants, to have, or he wants us to have certainty regarding Jesus and the things that we've heard. He doesn't try to wow us and convince us with miracles and these tales. He doesn't try to impress us with the kind of conversation Jesus was having with the temple leaders and teachers. But he wants us to know that age 12, Jesus already knew who he was and why he was here. There's an interesting thing that happens here in this text that Luke does throughout his, his letter. The word that he uses here for must, when Jesus says, I must be in my father's house. Luke only uses it in certain situations. There's other words that can be used for this. But in the original language, he uses the word day, D-E-I. And, and um, Luke only uses this, like I said, in certain situations. And every single time, it's when Jesus is talking about his purpose and mission. We read it here, saying, I must be in my Father's house. He uses this word. In Luke 4.43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. In 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In 1333, we read, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In 1725, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Luke does this 10 times with Jesus' words. Every single time the same version of must is used, and every single time it's about purpose and identity. Why Jesus is here? What is his mission? So when Luke uses it here in, in chapter 2, it's very strategic. It's not by accident. Luke wants us to know that at 12, Jesus knew exactly who he was, what his mission was, why he was here. All right, there's an indication there that Jesus wasn't just a devout, smart, 
all, you know, just stand-up guy who found a bunch of followers, a wise leader who just knew the right things to say and ultimately had a cult following and that started their own religion. No, but at 12, in his youth, Jesus was aware that he was the son of God and that he had a mission and purpose here on earth. And there's two things I think that we could take practically from Jesus' words here. Firstly, for parents, and then secondly, for all of us. While none of our children are quite like the child um, that Jesus was, some more than others, but that's all right. Um, there's an important lesson here for us that Jesus is trying to teach uh, Joseph and Mary. And that's that children need to hear the word of God too. Children need to be where the word of God is taught and discussed. Spiritual matters and questions regarding God and his word are not reserved just for mature Christians, but their children as well. When we assume that our children will be Christians just because we are, just because we pray before meals and have Bibles in our homes, we do them a huge disservice. This is why having a healthy keiki and student ministry is important. It's why it's important to include our children in our church service, why it's important to include them in our community groups, our men's and women's gatherings. But most of all, it's important for us as parents to be diligent in our own homes, to make much of God and his word in our private time and with our children. We must never underestimate the need for spiritual nourishment that our children need, regardless of age, even at age 12 and younger. Secondly, there's something here for all believers, young, old, married, single. Jesus' statement about needing to be in his father's house says a lot about our needs as well. If Jesus, who is himself the Son of God, thus God himself, if he needed to be in his father's house, how much more do we need to be in our father's house? Jesus knew his father far more intimately than any of us. He was his son. And he needed to be close to him. He needed to be in the places where the word was taught and proclaimed. And we, re, and we know that the temple was where God visited his people. It's where his presence dwelt and where his word was being taught and proclaimed. And the Bible is not shy about the fact that God's people needed to be in the temple. They needed to be with those who are worshiping him to be where the truth of God is taught and proclaimed. And while the church today functions differently than the temple did, the call for Christians is quite similar. We often have this individualistic view towards church, towards our faith, more and more modernly in terms of the fact that we often treat the gathering as something that's optional. That, you know, a lot of people have been hurt by churches. I don't like this or that about church, so I don't need to go. But it's just as vital for us to be in our Father's house, where we are called to gather, to sing together, to receive instruction and be in his word. Just as important it is for our keiki to have spiritual nourishment, so it is with us. We must be in our Father's house regularly. Next, we see the response to Jesus' words. Luke tells us that they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Luke says that Jesus spoke these words 
and they didn't get it. They didn't understand him. Jesus was peeling back the curtain a bit here. He was giving a glimpse of his identity and purpose, but Joseph and Mary, who knew him better than anyone, they didn't understand. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the way the fall, the way sin has affected our minds and our ability to comprehend things. Apart from God, we cannot understand the things of God. We see this play out over and over throughout the Gospels. Time after time, Jesus is faced with listeners who do not understand his words. The things he taught, the parables he told, often fell on deaf ears. It didn't matter if it was his parents who were with him from childhood, if it was religious leaders or his disciples or those coming by the thousand to hear him teach. Many would come, they would hear, and they would turn their back on him because they did not have ears to hear. They couldn't understand. This is made very obvious in John chapter 6. We read about Jesus feeding a large group. This would have been with men, women, and children, close to 20,000, somewhere between 15 and 20. It's a huge group of people that Jesus fed. He then crosses over the sea to another town, and the crowd follows him, wanting more of that miracle food. and wants some more of that magic bread. But Jesus, instead of giving them this bread, this miracle food, he instead drops truth on them, serious truth. And he tells them one of the great I am statements that Jesus gives in John, I am the bread of life. That they must partake of him and not just regular bread. And they don't understand him. They leave. Close to 20,000 people turn their back and he's just left with his disciples. And this happens over and over in the Gospels. Jesus' words fall on deaf ears. And ultimately, he's put to death because of it. They didn't understand who he was, why he came. And Jesus knew this. He knew it as a 12-year-old. He knew it as he grew up. He knew this was part of his purpose, to teach and to be misunderstood. Ultimately, to be nailed to the cross because of it. That he might bring salvation to these people and knowledge to them. We see it here at the beginning. At age 12, his parents knew him better than anyone. They had angels come, tell them what's going on, promise who Jesus was going to be, that he was going to be, in fact, the Son of God. They had this happen to them. And when Jesus says it here, they don't get it. They're confused. So we see here our fallenness is on display. And we learn that Mary and Joseph didn't know everything from the beginning the truth of who Jesus was came slowly to them as it came to many. And so what is Jesus' response to their confusion? How does Jesus handle this? Does he ridicule them for not understanding you guys should know better? Does he send them away and stay in the temple because this is where he needs to be? No. Luke writes, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus went home with his parents. He was submissive to them, and the assumption is that he didn't do this type of thing again. He didn't bring this great distress and anxiety and fear on his parents again. Luke, again, is interested here in showing us the character and identity of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He was in the temple, wowing teachers, engaging them in discussion, Incredible insight and wisdom. 
Yeah, but when it came down to it, he was submissive to his parents and humble. They didn't understand him. They didn't fully comprehend his true purpose, his mission, who he even was. Yet he loved them, he honored them, and he submitted to them the way that God calls children to their parents. And here's an important lesson for our keiki. Jesus didn't have the right to disobey parents. Even though he knew better than them, even though he was smarter than wiser than them, even though they made mistakes and probably wronged him at times, they didn't understand him. He created them. He knew them better than they could ever know him. And if there was ever a kid who had the right potentially to disobey and not submit to his parents, it might have been Jesus. But he did. Jesus submitted to them. And so for all our keiki in here tonight, the same thing applies for you, even more so. You have parents that aren't perfect. They'll make mistakes. Sometimes they're not going to understand you. But they're your parents, and they love you. They would search night and day looking for you the way Mary and Joseph searched for Jesus. God calls you to love your parents, to submit to them, just as Jesus submitted to his. And on a bigger scale, there's something here for all of us in terms of an example of humble submission. We see it throughout the Gospels that Jesus was a humble servant throughout his life. At 12, as he grew up, as he was older, And he was humble to the point of death on a cross. And we call, and we are called to submit like Jesus to authority figures that God has placed in our lives, whether it's familial, vocal, or vocational, spiritual, or in the areas of government, even. Even if we think we know better, even if it's uncomfortable, Jesus had every excuse to wield his power and authority, his wisdom and stature, but he submitted instead. He humbled himself. And so when God calls us to this sort of submission, we are to do the same. We are to consider the example that Jesus set for us in his submission, in his humility. And so Luke ends this story with these words. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. He uses this type of language twice in this chapter with the verses we started and here at the end. And he uses it as a springboard in terms of the passage of time. He uses it earlier to go from 40 days old to 12, and he uses it here from 12 into the adulthood and ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. And it's interesting that we read that Jesus, just like you and me, like anyone ever, He had to grow up. He had to grow up. He had to increase in wisdom. He had to learn and he had to increase in stature and he had to grow in favor with God and man. It was a process and it took time until the right time had come and he could fulfill his purpose. And I want to use this as a springboard as well for us as we consider communion tonight. This same Jesus, this boy Jesus who was in the temple, he grew up and he increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. 
and he became the man Jesus, who lived a perfect, sinless life, who taught many great things and did many great miracles, but ultimately was put to death. He was hung on a cross, mocked, beaten, spit upon, and he died. But in that, the boy Jesus, who became the man Jesus, bore our sin. He bore the wrath that God had poured out, reserved for us, poured out on him. And that's what we celebrate as we consider communion. That in these two cups here, the bottom one with the cracker in it, the top one with the juice or wine, we consider Jesus on that cross. The man Jesus who grew up to be our Savior. As his body was broken, hung on a tree, blood shed, that we might have salvation. And so church, during this next song, you can come forward, grab the elements, go back to your seat and partake as you feel led. Consider the boy Jesus who became the man who died for you and rose again that you might have life. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. We thank you for this evening, for this short, simple story, Lord, and I just pray that that your spirit would be working in all of us. Lord, I pray that the things I said were not a hindrance, that I was not in the way, Lord, but that you were able to speak to, to people tonight, Lord that you're able to speak to me. And Lord, as we consider this story and the identity of Jesus and who he became, what his purpose was, Lord, help us not to be caught up in miracles and supernatural things, but in the identity of who Jesus was and what that means for us, the life that it gives, the understanding that it gives, the way he saves, Lord. And even now, as we partake in communion, as we continue to sing songs, Lord, be working in us. Help us to make much of you. In Jesus' name, amen.